This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. It's episode number, well, to be honest, I'm not really sure what episode number it is anymore, um, with the way things have been going over the last few weeks, a month or so, during the uh, coronavirus uh, lockdown, uh, in between homeschooling and all the other work I've been doing, and getting out a whole series of kind of voices from civil society podcasts and mini episodes and interviews I don't really know where we are anymore so I don't suppose it matters but this is an episode of the Giving Thought podcast so yeah this the last few episodes have been uh, almost entirely uh, interviews with other people um, so please go and check those out some full length some sort of compilations of shorter episodes and those are all available individually as well um, we've got some more interesting interviews lined up over the coming weeks but just for now what I wanted to do was uh, just have an interview that was me talking for a little bit because because I've been doing quite a lot of work over the last few weeks, both sort of in my normal day job, thinking about what's going on in the here and now, uh, policy-wise, but also with a couple of my other hats on, looking back um, at the sort of historical angle around philanthropy in times of crisis, and also thinking about what the future might hold. And I wanted to just touch on some of the things that had come up through that work and kind of tie them together. Um, I'll try not to make it too long, but as ever, I'm not very good at that. So yeah, what I wanted to do first, I guess, was um, to, to to talk a little bit about um, the what I've been doing in terms of looking at the history of um, how philanthropy has responded in times of crisis and sort of been reshaped by it and what effect it's had on people's perceptions of philanthropy and, and the role it plays. And, you know, the reason that I think that's worth doing was partly I like history and I think it's worth doing uh, for its own sake. But also, I think at a time when we're trying to understand potentially enormous changes in the here and now, but also start looking ahead to the future um, you know and try and understand what the various different scenarios are and what kind of changes might have taken place and um, I think taking a historical perspective and understanding the history of philanthropy and civil society is really important because I think it gives you that slightly kind of longer term view and a sort of bigger picture perspective that helps you understand how macro trends and changes uh, happen over time. I think also as we're thinking about potential futures it gives you a sort of domain of ideas that you can draw upon to understand how things could be different and maybe have been different in the past and how they could be different in the future. So I think it's a really useful tool um, when you're thinking you know about, about the here and now but also about the future. Um, I mean I should flag up I think there are limitations to, to using history in that way as well. I think you have to be quite careful to understand where there are elements of a particular context that are specific to that context uh, the fact that there are probably going to be as many differences as similarities when you're looking at a particular historical example but I think if you can sort of be clear about that stuff up front it's still a very useful way of determining key trends and ideas and themes that can help guide our thinking and I'm basing this mostly on some uh, research well I say research some uh, faffing about in the evenings that I was doing for the Twitter thread uh, Twitter account that I run for literacy where I was just interested 
interested in reading lots of papers about the history of philanthropy and pandemics and wars and that kind of thing and tweeting various bits and pieces out um, and then I pulled some of that together into an article that was a bit more structured for Histville which I'll put links in the show notes to kind of outlining some thoughts on particularly from a European perspective in that case um, what the history of kind of philanthropy in times of crisis can tell us about what we should be thinking about now. So I just want to pick up there on what some of those key themes I picked out were um, in you know in as brief uh, a way as possible. So one of the things I think that's really interesting when you look at philanthropy in times of crisis is that there tends to be quite a strong focus during the crisis and certainly after on uh, attempts to kind of centralise um, philanthropy in one way or another. So really that's because you know philanthropy is quite... Um, in normal times, obviously, philanthropy is based on the voluntary choices of individuals and therefore leads to a kind of pluralistic civil society where people are supporting all kinds of causes for all sorts of different reasons. And maybe that's fine in normal times. But during times of crisis, policymakers, governments and those within philanthropy, I think, want there to be much more of a sense that the, any philanthropic provision is is kind of effective and organised and rational and the best possible tool for addressing the, the acute needs at the time. And so I think there becomes a lot more frustration at the idea that it's a sort of maddeningly imprecise tool and therefore you get element uh, efforts to sort of centralise and rationalise philanthropy looking quite a long way back in time for instance you see this uh, around sort of times of plague in various places around Europe there's a really interesting example uh, in Hamburg where um, there was a a sort of long term debate about the way in which the poor relief worked and initially it was sort of voluntary provision as it was in many other places but times of plague put such stress on that system of voluntary provision that the the city elders uh, started to kind of centralise that that voluntary provision while still trying to keep it voluntary. And over time, that led to more and more efforts to kind of centralise and take control of what was essentially a system of voluntary provision. Um, And then if you skip forward and look, uh, for instance, at the the effect of the First World War in the UK, um, again, uh, the, the kind of philanthropic and voluntary response aimed at the war effort there was thought to be um, so kind of disparate and, and poorly aimed that the government introduced a new post of the Director General of Voluntary Organisations to kind of coordinate and, and centralise some of that and make sure that, that all of that that kind of public spirit of generosity was was better directed. Um, and we'll see when we come on to talk about what's happening at the moment that that's, that's kind of a very live issue as well right now. Another issue that, that I think comes up very clearly from looking at the history is that the debates around the relative roles of philanthropy and the state um, become much more acute. So again, I think usually this is because, or it's a mixture of things, usually it's because there's an upsurge of sort of philanthropic and voluntary response um, as people are kind of motivated by crises to give. But even more so, it's that... Uh, the inadequacies of voluntary provision are usually highlighted so where there is a reliance on philanthropy or charity to to meet the needs and welfare needs of society at times of crisis those needs become so acute that it becomes apparent that that doesn't really work so you can see this for instance again looking at the the kind of history of uh, plague outbreaks um wk jordan who wrote a book on philanthropy in england 1480 to 1660 looked at this trend and he uh, he said quote um england learned much about the whole interest 
intricate matter of poor relief in the course of protecting the society from the secondary consequences of such plague epidemics. In many parishes, the first experience in administering the poor relief was gained in such periods of local disaster. So again, it's kind of the scale of the problems meant that the, the government, at whatever level, local or kind of central, had to step in to some extent to take responsibility for the welfare needs of citizens. Um, and it's interesting to see with with sort of subsequent crises the effect of this. The, the difference, for instance, between the First and Second World Wars is quite interesting. So the First World War, obviously, is very much in people's minds at the moment because it was followed or sort of overlapped with the 1918-19 Spanish uh, flu pandemic, which is, a lot of people are looking to as one of the most obvious kind of historical antecedents of, of what we're currently going through. And there's an interesting letter I came across in the Times uh, 1919. Um, somebody wrote in kind of about the the failings of the voluntary provision of hospitals at that time, saying the inadequacy of the present voluntary hospital system is again relieved when it is called on to deal with an emergency such as the recent influenza epidemic. But the interesting thing, even that letter, is that it went on to say uh, it's not a system of absolute state hospitals that this country wants for the immediate future, but the state coming forward to finance civic hospitals by subsidy and exercising a coordinating control of the whole system. So it's funny, that sort of ideological resistance to the idea of the state taking over from what is seen as the role of philanthropy is very evident there. And in some ways, the kind of failing after the First World War of the government and society to follow through on some of those le- those lessons about the inadequacy of reliance on voluntary provision, I think a lot of people would argue, paved the way for the subsequent development of the welfare state. So actually, when you had the Second World War, um, in, in the immediate aftermath of that, the lessons that were taken were very different. And obviously, that led to the creation of the NHS and, and sort of other elements of the welfare state. I think an, another interesting uh, element is uh, that the the views of what the causes of a particular crisis are are quite interesting and important when it comes to shaping the philanthropic response so when you look back at plague epidemics certainly sort of prior to the 20th century or um, maybe maybe kind of early in the 19th they they weren't primarily seen as a medical thing they were seen more as a religious issue so they were seen as a punishment from god at the at a community level or an individual level for some moral failing or sin so the remedies that were prescribed weren't again medical they were largely religious so it was more that they the um, the community had failed in some Christian duty or, or in some other way and it had to remedy that through its other actions and interestingly charity or, or kind of Christian charity was often one of the things that was highlighted as missing so it was that uh, a community had not been seen to be charitable enough and that one of the things it needed to do in response to to an outbreak of plague was to prove itself to be more charitable. So actually the role of charity in in uh, kind of addressing the issues of plague was partly about the sort of the actual attention and care um, to, to those suffering, but it was even more about the sort of moral importance of charity as a way of sort of proving that a community had, or an individual had learned their lessons. There's also looking kind of later on in the 20th century, I came across an interesting paper looking at the Spanish flu pandemic um, in 1918-19, and, and particularly around the formation of retail cooperatives in Norway, um, which is obviously quite a niche thing. But the, the interesting thing in this paper was that it looked at the effect that the the views of um, of the populace and sort of local communities about the pandemic, how it affected how likely they were to form sort of mutual.
individuals and cooperatives. And, and the key finding is essentially that in areas where the illness was seen as something that people should be blamed for and a reason to to kind of not to ostracise them, they were much less likely to have the formation of these um, these sort of mutuals and, and cooperatives. And I think, again, that, that sort of resonates um, today in that I think our understanding of the COVID-19 pandemic sort of comes from and how we should perceive those who are suffering from it, um, you know, as, as whether we kind of see some sense of solidarity or there's a sense of otherness dictates the response that people have in terms of sort of philanthropy and mutualism. And then the final one that I think that it's really interesting from history that, that definitely feels relevant today is just the point that whilst the interesting thing about crises like pandemics and wars is that they affect everybody rather than just a particular group of people, they certainly don't affect everybody equally. So often the effects are felt very unequally across kind of different communities and social classes and geographies, but also they can kind of strengthen and entrench uh, existing inequalities. Um, so looking at sort of plagues, for instance, there's a quote from the dramatist Thomas Lodge way back in 1604 saying, uh, where the infestion most rageth, there poverty reigneth among the commons, which having no supplies to satisfy the greedy desire of those that should attend them, are for the most part left desolate and die without relief. It's obviously saying poor people didn't have the money to pay people to give them medical care, so they were much more likely to, to die as a result of the plague. And and again, W.K. Jordan, looking at this, um, a sort of longer-term view of it, said, um, the, the frightful visitations of epidemic taught the nation much regarding its own resources, and discipline it in the understanding that the poverty bred by plague must be instantly relieved lest even more terrible social consequences should ensue indeed it's not too much to say that men had come to understand that poverty itself was a kind of plague epidemic in the industrial society so there's an interesting point there that actually as well as kind of revealing existing inequalities actually the acuteness of things like plagues and epidemics and, and wars and other crises can shift people's understanding of the fundamental nature of poverty and and kind of what the what the suitable remedies for it are and and the other thing to say about um, poverty is that it's not all a kind of council of despair actually although um, these pandemics can kind of exacerbate existing inequalities and you know philanthropy potentially can be problematic in that and it can it can kind of entrench as well those existing inequalities because in a lot of ways as we've discussed many times on the podcast philanthropy is is sort of symptomatic of inequality and and therefore it's kind of somewhat difficult sometimes to use it as a tool to address inequality there are interesting examples where actually greater equality has sort of happened despite that and, and philanthropy has ended up being a tool for that. So there's a paper, for instance, looking at women's volunteering in Winnipeg in Canada during the uh, Spanish flu pandemic. And the the author there, um, Essel Jones, argues, you know, on the one hand, philanthropy was a tool deliberately for sort of maintaining the existing social order, saying uh, the women who coordinated, shaped and defined volunteerism attempted to imbue the project with their own sense of class and ethnic distinction and to shape it into an embodiment of social order and stability but then actually what happened over the course of doing this was the the sort of experience of interacting with women uh, from a different walk of life and sort of different uh, socio-economic groups uh, meant that actually um, and she says the experience was highly unsettling and disruptive provoking a heightened sense of community that blurred the boundaries of class and ethnicity and emotional bonds between the volunteer and victim and there's an interesting example sort of along similar lines looking at world war one the, there was a thing called the uh, 
the National Relief Fund there, which was, again, a sort of centralised effort to, to distribute philanthropy. And it was quite controversial at first because the, the local committees that were responsible for making grant-making decisions were were seen as quite paternalistic. And it says here they, were, they treated pay, payments as charity to be given only if working-class women met their expectations of good behaviour. But the criticism actually led to changes where, over time, the working class membership of those committees grew um, and they became much more democratic. The local grant making committees as organisations, much more sort of citizen led. So it's quite an interesting example there. Okay, well, I think that's just some interesting uh, examples from history. In the next section, I'm just going to come on quickly to talk about what some of the key uh, themes are at the moment and how those relate to some of those. And then after that, we'll go on and think a little bit about what might happen in the future. So stay tuned for that. Okay, great. So we're back for uh, section two, um, and I'll try and keep this relatively brief as ever. So in this section, I just want to say a little bit about what some of the the key issues are sort of facing civil society at the moment. I won't labour these points because many of them are things that have come up very strongly in the conversations that I've been having with sort of voices across civil society um, in the recent series of podcast episodes. So please do go back and check those out. But just, you know, I've been talking to people about this and and doing presentations, so I thought I'd kind of give you my, my top list of bullets. So I think, you know, the most obvious one that almost anybody would be aware of is that there's reduced income across lots of different areas of civil society um, as organisations find that they're no longer able to run planned fundraising events or they have to shut down kind of trading activities like shops, art galleries, museums, um, that kind of thing. But at the same time, for many organisations, there's also actually increased demand because the the challenges created by the the pandemic mean that the, the groups they work with have greater needs than any before and that that's um sort of putting an unprecedented squeeze on a lot of organizations and there are sort of real concerns about what that means for the long-term viability of many parts of the sector um, another point i think is interesting and this certainly came up in the conversation that we had with rob williamson here on the podcast is that the this crisis feels different in nature to many uh, sort of previous real or imagined crises where you might look to philanthropy or charitable giving in that it's sort of almost universal in nature um, so it's not about one group of people being affected by an issue being asked to give to support another group of people um, who are affected by the issue it's more about everybody being affected by it and being asked to kind of support others who may be more affected by it or, or similarly affected by it and and in terms of the fundraising ask that makes it more complex because it's not really about sort of giving to them but all about you know um, supporting us um, and how that kind of impacts on fundraising in the short and longer term I think is something maybe we'll talk about in the next section another thing I think we're seeing is some really interesting shifts in funder behavior whether that's kind of individual donors or even more so kind of foundations and charitable trusts where uh, the short-term recognition of the kind of uh, the challenges facing their grantee organizations means that there's been quite notable shifts in in terms of approaches um, away from things like programmatic funding and restricted grants to unrestricted funding funding core costs so not sort of specifying that money has to be spent on a particular program but allowing the organization to spend it on whatever it needs to in the short term um also kind of reduction or even a removal of reporting requirements so demanding a lot less uh, in terms of you know financial data and and reporting from grantee organizations in sort of recognition that many of them uh, you know that that kind of additional admin burden at the moment would be problematic Um, and just sort of general shift towards a a notion of trust-based 
based grant making where the accountability is based on the idea that you kind of trust your grantee organizations because you have an existing relationship with them and you sort of are willing to believe that they will be responsible and know best how to spend the money that you're giving them and as with a lot of things happening during this uh, pandemic out of kind of short-term necessity it will be very interesting to see what longer-term impact that has on the way funders um, work Um, another thing uh, that we've seen i think and certainly came across in the conversations i've been having is that there's been a huge amount of collaboration cooperation and coordination um, among funders but also among kind of charities and civil society organizations more broadly um, as everybody is attempting to kind of work together in recognition of the scale of the challenges and really try to avoid duplicating effort wherever possible and people sort of putting aside institutional ego and a desire to make sure their logos at the top of a page uh, in, in a recognition that now is not really the time for that kind of thing and you know again whether that sticks is is one of those questions that, that still remains to be seen Another thing in terms of the the sort of impact on organisations that we're all feeling very much at the moment, I think, is that there's been a kind of huge enforced pivot towards working digitally. Um, Many organisations will obviously have sort of probably recognised that they need to embrace technology and and engage with the digital world for for a number of years now, but many of them have struggled to do so, either because it's not seen as a priority or they don't have the financial resources or know-how. And actually, in a very short space of time, a lot of organisations have had to make huge changes to the way that they work and deliver services and potentially that could be hugely beneficial if it means that it's accelerated a process of necessary transformation but again you know whether that all changes when things go back to normal and we go back to doing things how they were before or whether it fundamentally kind of alters the nature of work and, and how civil society operates is is something we'll, we'll have to see um, and then I guess a specific case in point there is that whilst there have been a lot of sort of traditional charities and funders and civil society organizations doing a lot in response to to the coronavirus pandemic has also been a very notable thread of kind of new digitally enabled networks um, emerging alongside those traditional organisations. So the sort of COVID mutual UK groups, um, local groups that are, you know, informal networks being run off Facebook and WhatsApp and others. Um, And actually in terms of people's sort of hyper local engagement um, with volunteering and sort of doing things to, to help out um, to address the, the coronavirus pandemic, um, a, a lot of the, the energy and effort seems to be there. And it's kind of really interesting to think what that might mean for charities and, and others uh, in the future. So that's just a sort of whistle-stop tour of some of the key things that, that I've been thinking about and talking to people about. Um, in the next section, I just want to go on and raise uh, some questions uh, with almost no answers whatsoever about what are some of the big questions that we might need to be thinking about as we look towards the future so stay tuned for that Okay, so we're back for the final part. Um, And as I said before the break, uh, in this part, I just want to talk a little bit about some of the thoughts I've been having based on conversations I've been having and just stuff happening in my own head and looking back at the history and trying to kind of use that as a guide to to shape my thinking um, about what we should be thinking about as we look towards the future. Um, And I think it's really important that we do start to think about the future within the worlds of philanthropy and civil society. Um, I mean, I absolutely acknowledge that a lot of people are very 
very focused on the immediate here and now by necessity because they're facing huge organizational challenges in terms of funding and how they deliver services but it feels as though this is a moment in time when so much is potentially changing quite fundamentally that if we are to take the opportunity um, to sort of do things differently in the future and also avoid being overtaken by events and have some chance of kind of choosing the future that we want then we really need to start thinking through some of the potential scenarios now and working back to what we might need to do in the short term to, to ensure that those are the ones we end up with. So I think the, the the kinds of things I've been thinking about, so one, you know, broadly is a set of questions around what this is going to do to the perceptions of philanthropy and charity and how we kind of perceive its role. So, you know, this is stuff we've talked about already in this episode and many times before on the podcast, but, you know, a big question to me is, will we sh- see a shift in sort of public views and expectations of what we think the state should do versus philanthropic provision? So I think, you know, there, it's, it's interesting to think through here in the UK, certainly there's been a lot of focus on the necessity for state involvement and, you know, people going out and, and clapping the NHS every Thursday. And there's been a huge amount of prominence given to the NHS um, and a lot of charitable money going towards the NHS. But on the flip side, a lot of people have sort of said, hang on a minute, it's great that people want to give to, to the NHS and support it at this moment in time but actually that gratitude in terms of clapping or charitable giving doesn't sort of answer or address the the fact that the reason it's been struggling is kind of chronic you know uh, underfunding or there hasn't been enough public funding for it and, and I guess looking more broadly beyond the UK there's an interesting question about whether philanthropy is perceived to be responding well to the pandemic and certainly in comparison to governments so in some places I think governments are seen to have been broadly doing a relatively good job whereas in other places um, the government I think governments have come in for a lot of criticism in terms of the way they've responded either the sort of scale or the speed at which they've responded to things and actually in some of those places philanthropic institutions or individual donors have actually been very prominent in terms of taking much more kind of progressive actions to to address some of the challenges so actually will that mean that people uh, actually kind of look more positively on philanthropy in relation to, to government in some places in the future. I think another thing going to something we were talking about before is what this will do to the kind of views on the relative merits of uh, of kind of mutualism versus philanthropy. So I think there are these two kind of traditions, certainly in the UK, but but elsewhere as well, that are they're intertwined but different, which is the kind of charitable philanthropic tradition that's about people who have some sort of asset giving to other people or supporting other people who who don't and then the sort of mutualism and self-help which is about people within a defined group um, whether that's sort of socio-economic or determined by kind of um, community of identity helping one another on a sort of equal footing and actually you know there's been a lot of focus on mutualism and collective effort um, during the pandemic and it'll be sort of interesting to see whether the it more broadly sees a shift back towards those kinds of ideas and away from from the kind of idea of a slightly unequal relationship of charity and philanthropy. Um, another thing I think will be really interesting is what the impact is on uh, sort of perceptions of where philanthropy happens or where where the where it starts. So I, I sort of pitch this as whether we're going to end up with philanthro localism or philanthro globalism. Because again, I think this pandemic's pulling in a number of different directions. You know, on the one hand, it's highlighting the 
capacity for action at a kind of at a nation or a state level. It's also, I think, if we're thinking about how we're going to avoid some of these issues in the future, making it clear that there has to be much more sort of international and global cooperation. But then at the same time, people are feeling the effects of the pandemic at a kind of hyper-local level. And a lot of what people are doing in a voluntary sense is it is extraordinarily local. And there's certainly, you know, in the research we've been doing at CAF, we've seen evidence that there's been much more focus on giving locally uh, than there has been to sort of international charities over over the last month or so. And whether whether this crisis kind of affects a longer term shift back towards notions of charity beginning at home or not, I think is a really interesting question. And then the final one there, I think, is um, this goes back to the first question about the sort of expectations of philanthropy and, and what we think and, how, and whether we think it's been doing well in response to this pandemic. Obviously, as anyone who's listened to this podcast will know, we are coming off the back of a couple of years in which there's been a lot of critique and criticism of philanthropy of one sort or another. And actually, in a lot of ways, the reputation of philanthropy has been, you know, taking something of a battering. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether the result of this crisis is that that shifts back in the other direction and people actually say, oh, do you know what? Philanthropy's is important has been doing a relatively good job and and we should probably be slightly less critical or whether people think that actually you know despite the fact that it may be responding well it's it's important to continue to critique it or even some might say that there's you know even more necessity to critique it so it'd be interesting to see how that goes and i think in terms of another area i think is really interesting is a bunch of questions around this sort of nature of organizational forms and the relationship between kind of traditional charities and networks that we talked about before um and this is stuff we talked about on the podcast many times so I won't labour it too much but you know are these new networks and kind of digital social movements um, sort of decentralised models are they an opportunity for traditional funders and charities to do things differently or do they represent a threat what is it about them that is appealing to people is it that people think that they're a more effective way of delivering outcomes or is it more about the fact that um, participation and kind of engagement and agency are baked into those models in some way so actually people want to sort of feel like they're doing stuff in a more active way and that these these new networks are offering that in a way that traditional charities maybe aren't in a lot of cases and is that a lesson for a lot of traditional charities we've said already is the this kind of current period of digitization that's happening at the moment uh going to result in sort of longer term changes in terms of remote working or how organizations use technology or are there people just going to shift back to doing things how they were before when this is all over and kind of do new models that we're seeing a lot at the moment of kind of crowdfunding and direct givings um, which you know here in the UK there's been uh, notable sort of examples of people crowdfunding for the NHS in the US I think there's been quite a lot of a focus on kind of direct cash gifts as a way of addressing uh, the needs of various communities and certainly organisations that had focused on making direct cash transfers to the developing world have sort of shifted to doing that within the US what's that going to do to more traditional charitable giving in the form of kind of giving to a charity or non-profit are we going to see that kind of disintermediation take hold and people looking to want to give sort of directly to other people more and more and then i think there's there's a whole bunch of questions um about the the sort of way in which philanthropy is done institutionally um uh, uh, that are really interesting and we talked about some of this in terms of the fund behavior so you know one is are we seeing the end of organizational ego in philanthropy as people kind of work and together and collaborate are they going to kind of stick with that are some of those short-term issues around core costs unrestricted grants and loosening reporting requirements going to hold in the, the longer term an interesting one to me is are we going to see a shift in terms of the perception of, of endowed assets in 
the, the, the philanthropic world. So you know, there's already a kind of debate about whether having these long-term endowments is is a kind of healthy thing in that actually, you know, is it better to meet the, the needs of society as it is now rather than to kind of hold on to these assets for the longer term or in perpetuity? And obviously there's a lot of pressure at the moment on foundations and others to sort of think about spending some of that endowment money in recognition of the, the kind of unprecedented scale of the crisis. But then the flip side is actually it's probably going to be important to have those sorts of institutions surviving into the longer term as we go through the process of rebuilding. So um, it'll be very interesting to see kind of whether the arguments in terms of the strength of endowments as a way of maintaining uh, a philanthropic focus over the longer term win out or whether the sort of necessity to spend the money in the shorter term does or where that balance lies. You know, we talked on the when we talked about history before at a kind of at a sector level what is the impact going to be of the the desire to kind of rationalize and centralize philanthropy as we coordinate activity in recognition of the sort of short-term imperatives of the crisis what longer-term precedents one might we be setting about the role of government and other policymakers in dictating the shape of civil society or the the, the sort of non-profit sector are we going to see more transparency within the sector and more sharing of data again that's a kind of important way of affecting collaboration and coordination in the short term uh, and certainly kind of you know positive thing in the longer term if this crisis results in more organizations recognizing the value of of kind of capturing and sharing data effectively and then i think an interesting thing looking to the future is what is there going to be a shift in terms of the recognition of the importance of foresight in civil society and amongst funders because it seems like quite an underfunded part of of the sector there's not a lot of effort going into thinking about the the longer term people are quite often focused on the short term or the next few years but i think this pandemic demonstrates you know certainly that as we get through the immediate crisis and you know even go beyond that sort of medium term period of rebuilding what is the role of civil society and philanthropy going to be in kind of making sure that we have the longer term thinking in place to uh, kind of avoid these kind of crises in future or at least make sure that um, we're in a better position to weather the storm as and when a similar crisis does happen and then I guess the the final thing um, the, that I wanted to flag up I guess is a negative one that as as with you know any kind of uh, huge change of the kind we're seeing now a situation like this I think is going to create new challenges that civil society is going to have to address um, so actually in terms of charities and the organizations that fund them the sorts of things that they're going to have to be working on as we come out of this crisis might look quite different they'll either be entirely new problems in some cases or at least new versions of old problems um, so you know I think there will be whole new dimensions of inequality as the the kind of health um, and economic effects of the pandemic have felt unequally I think you know there will be things like the impact on people's mental health of this enforced period of, of kind of social distancing and self-isolation and what that means I think you know the the impact on on children um, is is kind of really interesting question because we don't really know what this the longer term impacts developmentally and whatever of of this sort of short term very unusual period in a child's life going to be and then I think there are interesting questions when it comes to uh, sort of technology issues around things like whether change is made in the short term around the use of data and the kind of freeing up data on things like uh, health um, and, and other things in order to get the benefits of technology in addressing public health issues whether some of those changes are being rushed through without sufficient regards to issues of kind of human rights and civil liberty and it will be very difficult to 
turn you sort of turn the tide back in the other direction the other side so actually even in the immediate short term i think a lot of organizations in kind of digital civil society that are already aware of those are highlighting that there there is potentially you know the, a real danger that some some issues are going to to emerge as we kind of just nod through some of these new relationships with tech companies where they're using data to apply machine learning and all these sorts of things that actually we we might need to challenge in, in the short term otherwise we risk creating huge problems for the future okay so that is uh, just a sort of whistle stop tour of basically what i've been thinking about in terms of the sort of past present and possible future of how this this whole situation around COVID-19 coronavirus is going to affect philanthropy and civil society um, I hope that's been of some interest uh, to you um, I'll put links in all the show notes to sort of various things I've talked about there um, I've certainly got you know kind of blogs and articles and things written up on on each of the different things that I've been talking about there so you know please do check those out if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy in civil society check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website uh, follow me on twitter at rodri underscore h underscore davis or at philiteracy as i say uh, if you like the history stuff or sort of bits about academic writing a bit more um, if you've got ideas for people i could talk to on the podcast or things you know issues that we could cover drop me a line at giving thought at cafonline.org uh, other than that just like subscribe tell all your friends about it and i'll see you next time bye